Welcome to the Transformational Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Hannah Anam. My mission is to help you lead more effectively and be an agent of positive change in times of disruption. On this podcast, we interview practitioners and leadership experts and have coaching exercises that you can apply immediately to your work challenges. Together, we learn how to achieve success and create workplaces in a world that work better for all. I am really excited to welcome Raj Sisodia to our podcast. Raj and I have known each other now for a few years. Raj is a thought leader on the conscious capitalism movement. He is the F.W. Olin Distinguished Professor of Global Business at Babson College. He's also the co-founder and co-chairman of Conscious Capitalism, Inc. Raj is the co-author of the New York Times bestselling book, Conscious Capitalism, and co-author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Everybody Matters. Raj has published 11 books and is on the board of directors at the Container Store. Welcome, Raj. So excited to have you today. Thank you, Hannah. Happy to be with you. So tell us about your latest book, The Healing Organization. It just came out. And can you describe the premise of the book? Yes. So the book came out in September, uh, before the pandemic, of course. The premise of the book is that business as usual, as in the way that we have practiced it for a couple of centuries now, of course, creates a lot of value in the world. It provides employment, goods and services, innovation, technologies, all of that good stuff. But at the same time, it has caused a lot of unnecessary suffering, we believe, to people and, of course, to the planet. And we don't need to do that in order to be successful in business. So we, the first part of the book is really like, how did we get here? You know, an estimated 120,000 Americans die every year from uh, stress connected to work. Not the work itself, but the way we lead, manage, and organize. About 600,000 Chinese are estimated to die every year from overwork. Uh, heart attacks are 20% higher on Mondays in multiple countries and studies have found. The vast majority of people, 88%, feel they work for a company that doesn't see them as a human being, just sees them as a, as a you know, pair of hands or a function or an object. And then if you look at the other indicators of distress, one, a big one is financial. You know, leading into this pandemic, I mean, we were sort of enjoying a boom economy by some measures. The stock market was at record highs and unemployment was nearly at a record low, below 4%. And yet the reality for the majority of people was very difficult. You know, about 67% of people in the U.S. live paycheck to paycheck, mostly on hourly jobs. And about 50% an estimate is that have less than $400 in the bank. And if they needed to raise $2,000 within 30 days, would not be able to do so. So people are living right on the edge. They're barely surviving or they're living right on the edge of ruin. And that level of sort of worry and stress about finances then has health consequences from blood pressure to ulcers to uh, you know, heart disease and diabetes. I and mean, everything, 90% of diseases are impacted by stress. And, and our work is a huge contributor. Life is difficult enough and then our work adds to that because yeah. we often work in dehumanized environments. We work where uh, there's no security, psychological security, financial security, et cetera. And, and there's just a lack of caring. Kind of the dark picture that, uh, that exists uh, for many, many people. Yeah. So Raj, tell us about then, what should we be doing differently? Yeah, so I think we have to first of all, open our eyes and minds and hearts. Uh, as James Baldwin said, everything can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. 
So we have to face up to the reality of what is the lived experience of people who are touched by our business, whether they are employees, their children, families, their communities, the environment. Uh, one of the people uh, we write about in the book is Bernie Glassman, who was a Zen master who passed away, unfortunately, while we were writing the book. But he started a company called Graceton Bakery that we write about. But he espouses this Buddhist principle that we must bear loving witness, that we must bear witness to uh, the suffering around us, open our eyes. And from that bearing of witness, loving action will naturally arise. And I think that's where we have to start as leaders, that we have to start to see what, what, what is actually happening. And then say, how can we alleviate that suffering? How can we bring more joy into people's lives? And how can we promote healthy growth? There's a lot of unhealthy growth in the world, growth for growth's sake, right? How can we create the kind of growth that is actually beneficial to people and to, uh, and to the planet. There's so much packed in there. And so let me try to unpack it for us. Um, you talked about this notion of bearing witness and you said we must first see it in order to do something about it. And when we see something and, and bear witness, then naturally there is a sense of caring action that happens from that place. How do we do that? How do rank and file leaders, you know, anybody listening to this podcast, right? What does this act of bearing witness look like to you? And perhaps maybe even how has that happened for you in your life? So I think, you know, it starts by the leader themselves uh, modeling this behavior. Right? They're willing to be vulnerable. They're willing to share their challenges, what they're struggling with at a human level. You know, one of the things I write about is that there are two things that are locked away in the corporate closet. There's all of this unexpressed human need to care. We human beings have a need to care. We are wired to care. And capitalism and business generally has left that out. It's all about self-interest, right? Business has become all about self-interest, which is devolves into selfishness. I use other people to achieve my goals. I use employees, I use customers. And the other thing that is hidden is, is the suffering. There's a lot of silent suffering. So we have to create an atmosphere in which actually people are enabled to share that. Like if you could see a thought bubble over the head of everybody you know, in your office and understand what they're actually going through, right? it would really uh, literally be heartbreaking. But, but the thing is, those two things come together. The unexpressed caring and the uh, silent suffering. If we can enable one to be expressed and the other one to be not silent, then we can enable healing to happen. So doesn't matter what level of leader you are. Of course, it's ideal if the CEO has this kind of awakening. But even within any sphere of influence, you know, you don't need anybody's permission to genuinely care. You start caring for those people and you start uh, understanding what they're dealing with. And if we can help them deal with those things, then as always, there are business benefits to all of these things. And I don't like to lead with that argument because it makes it sort of mercenary. But the fact is when you do these things, there are always positive results for the business. But don't do that for that reason. Do it because it's the human thing to do. This is what we're called about. We are here to take care of each other on this planet. And business is a way we have invented that we can do that at scale, right? Beautiful, I love that. Can you repeat that again? Because I, I love this idea of business can be a way for us to take care of ourselves at scale. Of each other. Yeah. yeah. Take care of each other at scale. Because in my normal life, I can take care of a limited number of people, a handful of people. But if I start a company with the right set of values and, and, and a sense of purpose, then it can literally be uh, an instrument of caring for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. But there has to be a certain energy behind it for that to happen. If I use business as a way to use people to achieve my goals, 
right? Usually expressed in power and, and, and money. Then I'm going to use my employees. I'm going to use my and, and, and maybe abuse uh, my customers in the sense of tricking them, etc. I'm going to squeeze my suppliers. I'm going to burden society. I'm going to cause a lot of suffering if I start business with that energy. But I've used if I view business as a way that I'm going to express my purpose and my 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 values into the world and serve other people with that, then I'm going to bring healing. Right. So that's a fundamental shift that has to happen. So the metaphor we also use in the book is that there is sort of an empire building energy behind business or there is what i call the healing ministry energy i wrote a book called everybody matters with bob chapman and bob was a traditional kind of empire building business person but then at some point he had some awakenings and he started to see people as as everybody is somebody's precious child right and we need to take care of them and as though they were your own children and he had a series of these awakenings and then subsequently he changed the culture of the business and put people at the center and just created this incredible uh, organization. Then he started acquiring companies and making them part of that family. He said, we don't buy companies, we adopt them, right? And at the last count, had, uh, when I talked to him a couple of years ago before writing this book, he had 108 companies that he had bought, struggling and dying manufacturing businesses. And he turned them all around simply by putting people at the center and, and treating people extremely well and empowering them. And I asked him what he was up to, and he said, oh, I'm looking at 10 or 12 or more acquisitions this year. And I said, Bob, why do you need to, you know, you have 26 grandchildren and you have 108 companies. So when the number of companies exceeds the number of grandchildren, maybe you are, <laughs> and I know you don't need the money and you don't need the aggravation. Like, why aren't you just enjoying your life now? And he said, Raj, I don't know how much time I have left. And on my deathbed, I will not be proud of the machines we built or the money I made. I will be proud of the lives we touched. And before I go, I want to touch as many lives as possible. Yeah. You're not growing a business, you're spreading a ministry. Yeah. You're not bringing healing. When, when Bob Chapman comes to town, people feel life is going to get better. You know, he's going to buy our company and then we'll have a future. Our children will have a future. It's just incredible. I was just reading uh, Satya Nadella's uh, autobiography at uh, Microsoft. It's an incredible story. And, you know, he's a person who has brought heart and soul into Microsoft. You know, Microsoft had a purpose and had strategy, but they didn't have heart and soul. Right? And then when Bill Gates left, they had none of those things. They didn't have a good strategy, they didn't have their purpose, and they didn't have a soul. And you know, the thing just went south. And then Satya Nadella comes along, and in six years, he has created $1.1 trillion of wealth, market cap. And he's done it by refreshing the purpose and, and really bringing a sense of soul and meaning into that company. Yeah. He's done it authentic by sharing his own struggles in life and the fact that he has a special needs child. And, you know, I mean, he's brought all of himself into that. And it's that powerful combination of a brilliant strategy, a renewed sense of purpose, and a truly caring, empathetic, soulful culture. Yeah. So talk about this notion that at some point somebody has a shift. Because what you're talking about right now is the individual impact that a leader can make. And that impact comes from a fundamental shift in their own consciousness you called it awakening. Talk a little bit about that. We're going through so much suffering right now in this pandemic, mm -hmm. right? Some people, for some people, it's family members. For others, it's unemployment or fear or anxiety. How do we take this trauma people are experiencing individually and we are experiencing collectively and turn it into an opportunity to heal us individually, to awaken us, um, yeah. Because I imagine that it can either awaken us or it can harden us. Yeah. 
True, yeah. I mean, there's a fear response and a love response, right, to any situation. And I, that really is the, the key test here. And I think that phrase of awaken is important. I'm, in fact, starting a company called Awaken Inc. So, you know, I think it's sort of the, uh, the need of the world. We need to awaken. And what that means is that, you know, we really, as I said, we bear witness and we have to recognize the, the depth of suffering that's going on. What happened before this pandemic, there was a lot of silent suffering. And I think what the pandemic has done is, is surfaced all of that. It was all there. I mean, a lot of it was there already, right? But now we're seeing it out in the open and it's spreading to more and more people. And I think it is awakening compassion at a level we haven't seen in the past. Uh, it's opening hearts. It is simulating rapid action. It is generating a lot more cooperation across companies, uh, across industries, across sectors, across countries, etc. cetera. Uh, all of those things are the positive gifts of the virus. But this is actually educating us and giving us sort of practice about how to do the kinds of things that will be necessary. It's building some muscle memory. It's creating some infrastructure of caring out there that we can use and draw upon for future pandemics, but also for the biggest pandemic we face, which is climate change, where we haven't mobilized. You know, we're, we're doing things right now that normally would might have taken five years to migrate to a work-at-home environment, et cetera, and we're doing them in two weeks, right? in some cases, like that's what Verizon said. We had a five-year plan for this, now it's in two weeks, right? We can engage in rapid action like that. And I think we need to mobilize on that footing for climate change. I mean, that is the big one, right? I mean, these so-called black swan events are becoming more and more common. One thing that was really powerful that you talked about is the fact that we can somehow use this collective time of pandemic to reinvent ourselves in many ways, to move toward more awakening, more compassion. How do we do this at scale? And if I think about the largest companies you know, in the world, the Fortune 500 companies, and I know you sit on the board of a company, as do I, what is the role of the board of directors as it relates to incentives, compensation, because I feel like so much of the structure of incentives that we create for CEOs and then for you know, executives in those companies actually move us towards some of these actions that you yeah. talk about, optimizing just for shareholder value as opposed to a stakeholder view of, of an ecosystem. Right. So it's a combination of incentives and the kind of uh, people that are in positions of power, right? So I think the biggest job of a board of directors is to hire the right CEO. And when I say right CEO, that means today a CEO with evolved consciousness, who has not only the strategic capabilities and the analytical intelligence, but the emotional intelligence, spiritual intelligence, and, and an innate sense of purpose and deep values, and a deep sense of morals, uh, morality and ethics, uh, and systems intelligence. They need to understand how things work together, right? So we need to have people, as Peter Sengi said, power and virtue need to go together. And in most organizations, they don't, because most companies have promoted people who deliver the numbers, right? And they often end up, end up being the least empathetic people. And in fact, there are studies that show a high incidence of sociopathic personality profiles. So how do we do that? As a member of a board, you're, you know, evaluating from a succession planning perspective, who is the person that I want to groom or the sets of people I want to groom to be candidates for CEO succession? How do I figure out who has the right level of, as you called, this sense of compassionate caring? And how do I make trade-offs? Because to your point, right, there are some trade-offs 
that need to be made in terms of how somebody is going to deliver the numbers versus how somebody is going to care for people? Well, I mean, the trade-off question is interesting, right? I mean, our research and many others' research shows that in the long term, these companies are going to perform better, right? So they're not driven by that, but that's an outcome. And the superior, there'll be like, right actions lead to right outcomes, right? As the Buddha would say, right? And so perform, this is not, that's kind of a, a, a mentality that some people have that, you know, we, we either can be nice to people and, and for the planet, or we can be actually very successful financially. Look at Microsoft in the last six years, you know, what he's been able to do. When he came in, they were a mess. But then he started planting the seeds for the future. And right? within a few years, I mean, Microsoft is going high. So I think courageous patience is what's needed. The right person, right, then empowered with courageous patience by the board. And of course, we have metrics that are stakeholder oriented and forward looking. Yes. Right? So it's not just, uh, you know, the margins and the EBITDA and all of those kinds of things, but what we do, what's happening with our employee engagement, how great are we a place to work? What about uh, the uh, customer advocacy, you know, the uh, net promoter score? There are many ways to simple measures of these things, our suppliers, loyalty to us, uh, you know, our reputation in the, in the communities. There are many ways to measure those and those are forward looking indicators. Right, and they indicate uh, our future performance is going to be. So I think it's it's not hard. I mean, it's, if there's a will, we can measure those and track those. Right. The thing is that these kinds of leaders are going to be intrinsically motivated to do the right things. So they, they like Paul Polman did not need a bonus, right, attached to certain environmental outcomes for him to do what he did at at Unilever. This was his calling and purpose and passion to do this. Right. In fact, after they announced that they're going to hire him. Then they told him his salary, and he said, "No, that's too much. You know, that that is, you know, unreasonable. You know, I don't need that much." And he's embarrassed by the amount of salary that they were they were planning to give him, right? So we need leaders. The acronym that I use is selfless. Conscious leader is selfless. They have transcended the self. This you know, this point, notion of focus on me to a much bigger sense of a focus on we, and yes. talk a little bit about that journey. You know, if if you know, people listening to this podcast, how do they make this journey? Are there certain actions that can help propel that journey? It starts by saying, I need to heal me. Right? Start by healing yourself. Now, what does that mean? There's nobody out there that does not need healing. Right? We talk about PTSD affecting you know, veterans of Afghanistan and Iraq. And Actually, all of us have some level of PTSD. Okay, life is traumatic in and of itself. There are some predictable traumas that happen to everybody in, in, their, in their childhood and adolescence, but there are other unique traumas to each of us. And most of us, we discount those because say, why, what right do I have to complain when other people saw their friends you know, get blown up uh, in, in wars, right? But the fact is there are traumas nonetheless. And that was one of my learnings in writing the healing book is that I was told you need to focus on your own healing. You have no right to write a book about healing unless you actually work on yourself first. We have to go on that journey, we have to look inward and we have to go deep, right? And we have to understand our essence. Who were we when we were born? What is our you know, sort of nature? You know, as in India, they talk about your, uh, right? So there's the dharma and then there's your swabhav. Swabhav is your unique nature. What qualities were you born with, etc. Which is in a way is a signal of what your contribution is meant to be in this lifetime, your destiny, right, in some way. So you need to go back and then heal the traumas as well, the things that happen that you're carrying around and you're being driven by those 
you know, those things that happened to you, whether it was at two years old or six years old or 10 years old or whatever it was, right? And you need to understand those, figure those out, address them head on, heal from them, and then move on. So if you have a wounded inner child, and I would say any leader who's acting out in the world, any leader who's causing suffering and, and engaging in violence and, and aggression is really acting out a wounded inner child. You know, and if you want, we can talk about our president as a good example of that, right? I mean, there's a deeply wounded inner child somewhere in there, right? So that's something that we have to start to heal. And, and then from that place, we can serve we, heal me, serve we, and impact or change the world, right? But the more bigger an impact we want to have in the world, the deeper we have to go on our personal journey. Because that's never ending. I'd love for you to punctuate that for me a little bit. Would you say that again? Because it just strikes me as so important. The greater the impact we want to make in the world, the deeper we have to go inside. Yes. The consciousness of an organization is limited by the consciousness of its leader. If the leader is stuck at a particular level, the organization will never rise above that. And so to break through, the leader has to break through. And for that, they have to do more deeper inner work and understand even more about themselves. I mean, it's so, it's so limitless depths within us yes. to explore yes. and, and learn from, right? I mean, we are each sort of a, a microcosm of the macrocosm. And so that journey never ends. And that's a commitment that a conscious leader would make to continuously healing because you cannot give what you don't have. And so I learned this because when I was starting to write the book and I had some of the stories and I had some of the frameworks and so forth, and I was ready, I blocked out the summer of 2018 to write the book. And I was turning 60 that summer, uh, sort of a uh, significant point in my life anyway. Then I got advice from three people that if you're writing about healing, you need to work on yourself and take time off. You need to, you know, you're always running constantly one project to the other, one flight to the airport to the other. And, and go within yourself and then go into that uh, exploration. And I said, I don't have time for that. I have a book deadline, October 5th. And I said, book deadlines are flexible. <laughs> okay, you don't need to be driven by that. This is important. So fortunately, I listened. By the way, these were three women who told me that. Uh, Lynn Twist, who runs the Pachamama Alliance. And she told me, Raj, I, 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 after I interviewed her, she called back the next day and said, you were in my dream last night. You need to come on this trip with us to the Ecuadorian rainforest. The founder's journey, 10 days. We're going to spend 10 days with the native indigenous people of the Amazon rainforest. You're going to learn tremendous healing wisdom from the shamans and understand how we connect to nature and so forth. And I said, yes. Uh, we had a Himalayan journey in the uh, Tibet, uh, India, India-Tibet border. My Shakti leadership group, uh, Nilima, my co-author there, uh, she organized and that, that's where I turned 60 actually. And uh, She also told me, you know, take some time and do these more of these kinds of things. I said yes to a silent retreat that I had already said no to, which was in upstate New York for four days with Peter Senge and David Cooperider and others, 35 people. And it was incredible. Uh, and I also worked with a coach for the first time who happened to be a woman. And she also told me to take some time off. And one of the things that she told me, which was interesting after hearing the trajectory of my life and my work and how for 25 no, 20 plus years, I was sort of an unhappy business professor. And then I kind of stumbled onto this path when I wrote Firms of Endearment, sort of accidentally. And, and, and from that day on, all of my work has been in this line, of conscious capitalism and Shakti and healing, et cetera. And it's all been about bringing love and care and empathy and inclusiveness and compassion to the world of business. And she said to me, do you realize that you have been honoring your mother with your work? 
for the last 15 years. That before that you were struggling mightily to try to impress your father, right, with your worldly success, right, and playing that game, right, which is conquer and defeat and win and no other. And that wasn't you. And that's not your destiny. And then you turn to this side. You were, you were guided in a way towards this path, which is completely a reflection of her. And that's when my work started to have meaning and power. The other was, was coming just from the head, right? The books I had written up to that point, etc., were all intellectual exercises and they were serving the dominant narrative of business, right? Profit maximization, using people. And from that day on, it became about taking care of people, serving people, loving them, and showing that this actually is the path, not only to happiness and fulfillment, but also to success as you define it monetarily. And so that, that became a, a powerful insight for me. And, and one of the great healing things that she did for me was she said to me, Do you, does your mother know that? And I said, well, I didn't know it, so how would she know it? <laughs> and she said, well, I need you to tell her that. And I said, oh, you know, we don't talk like that in my family, you know. We talk about how are your knees feeling and how's the weather and, you know, all of that. She said, no, I need you to call her and tell her that. I said, well, every time I call, my dad is always sitting there and he's got it on speaker and uh, he'll say, what's he talking about? Why is he talking like that? She said, yeah, I don't care. You need to call her. Okay. And I said, I'm going to India in three weeks. I'll tell her in person. She said, no, she's 81 years old. We don't know what happens in three weeks. So the next morning I called. Fortunately, my father was in the shower, so I got the opportunity to have an extended conversation with him. I'd actually written down all the things I wanted to say to her, which I had never said to him. You know, we take our mothers for granted, right? We run after our father. My father is this larger than life figure with a PhD and gold medals and doing all this thing. The mothers are just there loving and caring. And I mean, not all mothers are the same. I know that. My, my, my mother was a pure embodiment of unconditional love, care, compassion, empathy, forgiveness, etc. In 60, two years, 61 years, and she never once had a harsh word for any of her three children, literally. So it was incredible. But we took that for granted, right? Never what did you told. share with your I mother? Told her, I told her, I called her mommy. And I said, mommy, I want to tell you that, uh, you know, she's always very proud when I come on the TV or there's an article or whatever, you know, she just feels hard. So uh, I said, you know, I want to let you know that everything that I've been doing in the world that people have cared about and that has had an impact is because of what you taught us and what you showed us, right? And she just started crying. She said, oh, Raj, I'm nothing. You know, I don't know if you speak Hindi. You know, I'm nothing at all. And I said, no, you're everything. You know, see, she had this sense of herself that because she was less educated only until the eighth grade. She didn't really speak English. You know, she always saw herself as lesser than. My father was a domineering figure in her life. You know? So she never had her own ability to express herself. And I said, yeah, you are everything. You are what the world needs. This is what the world is dying for. This is why people are out there hurting each other and killing each other because they are not in touch with that energy which you embody so beautifully. And that's what I'm trying to you know, bring to the world. You know? And so anyway, unfortunately, I recorded that conversation, you know, and it turned out to be such a healing thing for her because it gave her a sense of, because she would say to my sister-in-law, you know, I, my life wasn't worth anything. I didn't do anything. I was unhappy all my life you know, because of the marriage. I'm sharing a lot of personal things here, but they're going to be in my book. Anyways. So I think that, and you know, by the way, in the last year, both my parents passed away, you know, so I was able to get to a place of, uh, healing and and uh, expressing myself with both of them I, even my father had all kinds of things that I 
I was carrying around as traumas, that things that he did, which affected my life greatly. But by the end, I was able to come to a place of beyond forgiveness, acceptance, understanding, and even empathy for his life and what he had gone through. So all of these were essential pieces of healing for me. Otherwise, I, you know, I had about 20 years where I was just bitter. You know, I was carrying around a lot of bitterness because of things that happened in my life and things that my father did and so forth. And that was really poisoning my, my soul. And all of that has been released. And uh, the last 15 years have been very, very different. And that's then showed up in the work. What a beautiful story, um, Raj. I'm so very touched um, by it right now. And um, what a beautiful gift that you gave to your mom. Yeah, no, I think she was just this incredible gift to anybody who knew her. And unfortunately, she passed away three months after my father passed away. So we never got a chance to really express more to her, to take care of her, to enable her to realize some of her personal you know, dreams or whatever, you know, so she was just always taking care of us and then she was gone. Yeah, yeah. And, and yet, um, you know, her gift lives on through the work that you're doing in the yeah, world. I, I see my purpose now with a deeper sense of clarity that uh, in a way that I'm trying to bring my mother to the world, bring that energy to the world. That's that's kind of my my role here, and it's really, and ultimately, you know, she had tremendous love, but what she did not have was personal power. And she couldn't speak up to my father. She couldn't make him not do the hurt, hurtful, hurtful things that he did, because she, I mean, she had the power. She didn't know how to use it. She never used it. And I think what I've come to realize now is that you need to blend that that sense of love and uh, compassion, etc. But you need to combine it with personal power. Yes. So the people in history who have changed the world for the better combine strength and love, right? Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, right? Tremendous strength coming from a place of love. We have a lot of leaders who are very strong, but they're not coming from a place of love. For anybody who's listening to this that has a yearning for going on that kind of journey, Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for them? What are some simple actions or practices that might be useful for them? Well, first of all is the intentionality, right? You have to want to be a conscious human being and a conscious leader. And then you have to find uh, the right kind of teachers and guides. And of course, all the wisdom of the ages exists out there. And you know, it's all written in books and there are videos now. We have access to everything. We have to have the intentionality. And then we have to open ourselves up to experiences. You know, if I had not gone to the rainforest, if I simply read John Perkins's book about going to the rainforest, well, that's one thing, going there, right? Experiencing the shamans. You know, and I'll even go as far as to say that, you know, as part of that shamanic uh, journey in, uh, in Ecuador, I even experienced what they call ayahuasca, you know? How was ayahuasca for you? It was an incredible, uh, you know, awakening for me. And it enabled me to see truths in a different way. Uh, it, it opened me up emotionally. I mean, I just for the first hour or so, I just cried. I expressed grief for all the things I had not been able to express grief for for decades. I was bottled up and closed. People died, I didn't cry. Okay? As a sentimental, emotional person, I was born as. But because of my father's influence in the world, etc., I was kind of, you know, I had this armor around me. And the first hour was simply opening up, you know, and grieving for everybody that needed, you know, grieving for, you know, and my family and my parents, my, I mean, my father, grandchildren, you know, and even for, for, uh, for the planet and so forth. 
And after that, I started to see visions of things and messages that came to me. You know, one example was I, I saw an image of, uh, you know, there's this uh, woman from India who's called Amma, mm -hmm. the hugging saint, right? She goes yes. all over the world and she's hugged by I don't know how many millions of people. And people stand in line for hours under the hot sun. Yes, I've actually, she's been here in Atlanta and I've, I've done that standing in line for hours. Oh my God, right? And so then and they get a hug and many of them just cry because they experience some kind of unconditional love. She doesn't even say anything and she doesn't speak much English. Right? And so the image I got was a long line of people standing under the hot sun waiting for a hug from this tiny woman. And the message I got was all these people could be hugging each other. They have what they're looking for. We don't have to go to a third place, you know, et cetera. We all have you know, what we each other need. We don't have it all ourselves, but we have it for each other. You know? So that was one of many such insights that I got that night. I got words like love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. So these are the things that the world needs to hear. The world of business needs love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. Right? And that came to me in, in the shamanic journey, you know, in the, in the ayahuasca journey, uh, et cetera. So there are a bunch of things like that. So I would say, Meditation, silent silence is incredible. In that silent retreat, I mean, I filled up like a 50-page notebook with thoughts that just came. I was like channeling, you know, it was just coming through me. We don't realize how little silence we have in our lives. Beautiful. What an inspiring conversation, Raj. I really appreciate your opening up and sharing so much of yourself and your journey uh, with us. And... Um, I'm looking forward to learning more about Awaken Inc. as you continue your path forward and your upcoming book. You're very welcome and thank you for doing the work that you're doing. It's all making a big positive difference in the world. Thanks for listening. This is your host, Hannah Anam. Please rate, comment, and share our podcasts with those you care about. Be the leader who helps others grow and thrive in times of disruption. You can visit our website at www.transformleaders.tv. There, you'll find other great tools to grow your leadership and be a force for good in these times. Until the next time, my friends. <laughs>